I'll be reading 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. I'll be preaching primarily on the first eight verses of that chapter. So I'll read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. We'll spend our time thinking about verses 1 to 8. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, in the classic film, The Wizard of Oz, uh, we hear the story of Dorothy Gale's journey through the magical land of Oz. Dorothy is swept into Oz by a magical tornado, and of course, Dorothy wants to go home. And she's led to believe at the outset of her journey that the only way for her to get back to Kansas is to follow the yellow brick road to the Emerald City and to meet the Wizard of Oz because of the wonderful things he does. So that's what Dorothy does. She makes some friends along the way. She sings some songs, melts a witch... And eventually, Dorothy arrives at the wizard's chambers. But when she does, she finds that her faith was misplaced. The wizard is a quack. He's not magical. He can't send Dorothy home. He can't even give the tin man a heart or make the cowardly lion brave. All he can do is give them some really bad talk therapy. Sorry to spoil the movie, but you've literally had since 1939. So, <laughs> Dorothy's faith in the Wizard of Oz motivated her along her journey. But in terms of getting her back to Kansas, it was a total waste of time. Her faith in the Wizard was in vain. Well, our sermon passage this morning, as we've seen, speaks about the issue of faith, not the imaginary faith of an imaginary character in an imaginary fake wizard, but about the real faith of real people in the real and historical person, Jesus Christ. And, and in this passage, the Apostle Paul raises a very unhappy possibility about Christian faith. 
Look there again at verses 1 and 2. Notice especially the last clause in verse 2. Paul says there, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel or the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, In our sermon passage this morning, and really throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul addresses the possibility that the Christians in Corinth, and really all Christians everywhere, have believed in vain, that our faith is unfounded. You see, in our world today, there are many, some of whom would even call themselves Christians, who see Christian faith as something very much like Dorothy's faith in The Wizard of Oz. Christianity, they would say, is a set of ideas and values that helps you along the yellow brick road of life. And that's about all. I actually spoke with a woman just this week in the airport as I was flying back from Texas uh, who described her own faith in Jesus as something very much like Dorothy's faith in the Wizard of Oz. This woman's faith in Christianity, she said, helped her to live a better life and to remain encouraged. But to her, it wasn't really terribly important whether the claims of the Bible were objectively true whether they led somewhere in the end. We'll just notice one thing that's very clear from our passage this morning is that the Apostle Paul does not see things that way. For Paul, faith in Jesus grabs hold of a very real solution to a real and urgent problem. So Paul's full argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that the resurrection of Jesus means that those who have faith in Jesus will rise from the dead when Jesus returns with their sins forgiven to enjoy eternal life with God. And later on in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spells out what it means if Christ did not in fact actually, for real, for real, bodily, rise from the dead. If you have your Bible open, look there in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 and 18. Paul says there, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Paul says if Jesus didn't actually, literally, bodily die and then rise, then Christian faith is futile. It is a waste of time because we are still in our sins. There is still hostility and guilt between us and the God to whom we will give an account. And when Christians die, that's it. Close curtains. Nothing but eternal death if Christ has not been raised. And Paul is very honest with us. If that's true, then Christianity is a really foolish thing to believe. A Christian is a foolish thing to be. Look there in verse 19. Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise, our faith is in vain. And Paul tells us exactly what we should do uh, instead. Look at verse 32. Paul says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
If Jesus didn't rise, sorry, you're wasting your time in church this morning, right? Go get all the self-gratification you can before you die, because that's all there is to be gotten if Christ didn't rise. So here's the million-dollar question. Do Christians believe in vain? Do Christians believe in vain? Two responses Paul makes to that question in our passage, two points in our outline this morning. First, Christians don't believe in vain because the scriptures predict Christ's death and resurrection. Christians don't believe in vain because the scriptures predict Christ's death and resurrection. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, see, throughout the Bible, God repeatedly points to His ability to declare in the Scriptures what is going to happen before it happens as a sign of his authority and control. And in the scriptures, God announces his plan of redemption before he accomplishes that plan so that when it happens, his people will see that he is in the driver's seat. And Paul points out here that the death and resurrection of Jesus are the centerpiece of the plan of salvation that we learn according to the scriptures recorded beforehand in the Old Testament. We see this in at least three ways, three ways that the scriptures point us forward to the death and resurrection of Christ. First way that the Old Testament points forward to Christ's death and resurrection is in how it frames our central problem. It's not news to any of us that we've all got problems. We've all got things in our lives that are not the way that we wish they would be. Well, what the story of the Bible shows us is that our central problem is not the frustrations that we face in this life. Our central problem is the two-pronged problem of sin and death. Sin and death. On the first pages of the Bible, we learn that because of our sin against God, The posture of our hearts has become one of hostility toward God, of running from Him, suppressing His truth, not trusting Him. And as a result, the Bible teaches that we are alienated from the God who gives life. And as a result, we are all headed for death, both physically and eternally, the Bible says. And so throughout the Old Testament, what we find again and again is the inadequacy of any problem-solving that stops short of addressing our problem of sin and death. See, throughout the Old Testament, no matter how much God does for His people, their own sin and the brokenness of the world continue to afflict them until they die. One of the great themes of the Old Testament is that God works amazing deliverances again and again and again for His people. He shows them incredible kindness But none of those deliverances lead to a happily ever after for God's people because none of them fully and finally address our problem of sin and death, of guilt and hostility between us and God, and the judgment that we have incurred through that. 
See, listen, in 21st century America, we live in unprecedented physical prosperity. We don't face so many of the pressing problems, the horrendous problems that most of humanity has grappled with throughout recorded history. And yet our experience of life is still one of problems, one of sorrows, one of difficulties, right? We, we can't shake the sense that all is not well. If you pay attention to our culture's movies and its streaming series, what you'll find is that we are obsessed with trying to answer two questions. First, what do I do with the sense that I've done something wrong? I watched an Amazon streaming series not too long ago, and over and over again, the good guys would sort of have these deep conversations with each other, and one of the good guys would say to the other, this is my fault, and the other would say, no, no, it's, it's not your fault. They, again and again, we can't get away from the question, what do I do with the sense that I've done something wrong? And the other question we can't get away from is, what do I, how do I cope with the fact that I and everyone I love will die? We cannot get away from these questions. Sin and death, right? These are the, the problems for which our culture, for all of its wealth and technology and sophistication, it has no answers. The scriptures point us forward to Jesus Christ by returning again and again to our central problem of sin and death, teaching us to look for a solution to that problem. The second way the scriptures point forward to the death and resurrection of the Christ is through the consistent pattern of its deliverers, the clear problem and the consistent pattern of its deliverers. Immediately after God's word tells us of our central problem of sin and death in Genesis chapter 3, the first or second page of the Bible, God promises that he will send a deliverer to fix our problem. And as we mentioned, throughout the Old Testament, what we find is a series of almost deliverers, right? people who rescue God's people in partial ways. And in these deliverers, we see a foreshadowing of a final deliverer who would die and rise. Think of Joseph betrayed by his brothers, tossed down into a pit, raised up by God to be the highest authority in Egypt to save from famine. Think of King David. In the Psalms, David describes his sufferings at the hand of Saul and his persecutors as drawing near to the gates of death. God raises up David and sets him on a throne to rule for the good of his people. Right? Think of Jonah. Jonah's sins get him tossed down into the sea. Jonah describes his descent into the ocean as drawing into the belly of the grave, and God raises Jonah back up from his watery grave. Think of Daniel thrown down into a lion's den, condemned to death, raised up alive by the power of God. Think of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into a fiery furnace where they were supposed to die, an image of God's judgment, raised back out of it alive. Right, in God's miniature deliverances throughout the Old Testament, there's a discernible outline. There's a clear pattern of death and resurrection. That's meant to teach us to expect that when the deliverer comes, he will deliver by plunging into death 
and coming out alive. The scriptures point us forward to Christ's death and resurrection and how they describe our central problem and through their consistent pattern of deliverance. Third way the Old Testament anticipates Christ's death and resurrection is through its clear predictions, through its description of our central problem, its consistent pattern, and through its clear predictions, right? In the Old Testament, we don't just get outlines of what the Messiah would do suggested to us by story arcs. God tells us plainly and unequivocally what the Messiah would do. Maybe nowhere more clearly do we see that than in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 52 and 53. Look, look with me at that passage from the bulletin, if you will. What we have here is a prediction that God's servant, his chosen deliverer, would finally solve God's problem of sin. Right? Look there in chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. Speaking of this servant, it says, but he was pierced, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, for the guilt that stood between us and God. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus was born, he predicts that God's chosen deliverer will come to be pierced and crushed as a substitute to pay for the sins of God's people. And how would he do that? Well, Isaiah says that he'll do that by fulfilling the pattern of dying and rising, not metaphorically, but literally. Verse 9, clearly the servant dies in chapter 53, verse 9. Isaiah is talking about his grave. Who do you put in a grave? Someone who has died. But somehow, after verse 9, there in verse 12, God is dishing out prizes to the servant, right? He's he's alive again. God awards him portion and a spoil. So Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus Christ walked the earth, clearly predicts a dying and rising deliverer who would save God's people from their central problem of sin and death. Look there in verse 11, chapter 53, verse 11. Isaiah says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Friend, listen, if you're wrestling with the problem that the makers of that Amazon series couldn't get away from. What do I do with the sense that I've done something wrong? Come to Jesus Christ who died and rose to make sinners righteous. He is God's only solution to our problem of sin and death. Friends, Christ died, Christ rose in accordance with the scriptures. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian or you're skeptical about the claims of Christianity, first, I just want to welcome you here. We are are delighted that you've come to be with us this morning. Friend, let me ask you, what do you do with these scriptures? What do you believe about them? How did they get here? What do you do with the Bible's unified message 
written across thousands of years that prefigures and predicts the dying and rising Messiah who rescues us from the problem of sin and death. Right? If, if this is not the Word of God, what is it? And how did it get here? What, what do we do with these scriptures? Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, listen, when you're tempted to wonder whether your faith is in vain, when your sufferings or the evil that you don't understand in the world tempts you to doubt that God's promises are true, brother, sister, remember the witness of the scriptures that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. See in the scriptures that God is not flying by the seat of his pants that he is not a fake wizard with big claims and no control. I see in the tapestry of the Bible that only God could weave, that God is trustworthy to do what he's promised to do. Saints, our faith is not in vain because the scriptures predict Christ's death and resurrection God is faithfully bringing to pass the plan of redemption that he's been telling us about from the beginning. He is worthy of our trust, saints. Our faith is not in vain. The second reason Paul gives us in this passage that the Christian's faith is not in vain is that many witnesses confirm Christ's death and resurrection. Many witnesses confirm Christ's death and resurrection. <clears throat> Suppose that we read the Old Testament and we agree with Paul. We see in the Old Testament a unified prediction of a dying and rising Messiah who would deal with our problems of sin and death. We see that prediction, that expectation in the Old Testament. Well, that actually doesn't answer the question of whether Jesus is the one who fulfills that expectation. Right? I myself made some predictions about college basketball this past March Madness. And I have to admit, my faith was in vain. My predictions did not come to pass. Well, what about the predictions of the scriptures? Did the deliverer really come and die and rise? And if he did, how do we know? Well, there are many ways we could answer that question. The approach Paul takes here is to point to a multitude of eyewitnesses who confirm that Jesus Christ did in fact die and rise from the dead. First things first, before Jesus could rise, he had to die. Well, no one serious about the study of history contests that Jesus was an historical man, a Jewish teacher, who was killed by the Romans around 30 A.D., so Oxford-educated scholar Tom Wright, he says the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the best attested facts in ancient history. So Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus, neither of which were Christians, both writing within a hundred years of the event, they both agree that Jesus was killed by the Romans. By the way, so do Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and Peter. Right? The disputed claim is not whether Jesus died. It's whether he was raised. We'll look what Paul says in our passage there again, starting in verse 3, reading on into verse 8. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared 
to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. That word translated appeared, it's literally just the passive form of the word to see. So literally we could translate it as he was seen by, he was seen by, he was seen by. After Jesus died, Paul says he was seen alive by quite a lot of people. Paul mentions there four groups of witnesses. First there in verse 5. He says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. So Paul is telling us here what the book of Acts confirms, uh, that after Jesus' death, his twelve closest associates who had spent time with him for three years before his death, these people whose names we know from history, some of whose writings we have in the Bible... These people claim that they saw Jesus after he died alive and well. So what do we make of that claim? The claim of the 12. Well, there are three possibilities about the claim, really. First, these 12 men could be lying. They know Jesus didn't rise, but they're telling people that he did. That's what the Roman soldiers are told to say in our reading from Matthew, right? They came and stole his body by night, and they're lying about the fact that he rose from the dead. They have his corpse. But that really doesn't make very much sense because 11 of these 12 people died violently for speaking about Jesus, right? History tells us that Peter, or Cephas, was crucified for speaking about the risen Lord Jesus, Andrew was crucified for speaking about the risen Lord Jesus. Thomas was killed violently with a spear for speaking about the risen Lord Jesus. Philip was hanged for speaking about the risen Lord Jesus. It seems unlikely, to say the least, that these men would have died painful deaths for preaching what they knew was a lie. People lie all the time, but you hold their feet to the fire, and often they'll tell you that they're lying. These men didn't do that. They went to their deaths proclaiming that Jesus had risen, that they had been with him. Well, the second possibility is that they could be mistaken, right? These 12, they were true believers. They really thought that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they were wrong. They were mistaken. They were deluded. But again, that doesn't really make very much sense because how do 12 men with the intellectual prowess to jumpstart the world's largest religion convince themselves that over a period of 40 days, they spent time with and shared meals with a dead man. Right? In, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke goes out of his way to say that Jesus ate broiled fish with the disciples. Right? They didn't have ecstatic visions of Jesus uh, eating strange foods. Right? They, they shared meals with him. It wasn't just that these 12 men had a warm feeling in their hearts three days after the crucifixion that all would be okay. And then they psyched themselves into believing that Jesus must be spiritually alive. No, these men with sound minds were convinced that they touched and ate with a man who had died. And that's not the kind of thing that rational people come to believe mistakenly with enough confidence to die for it. So what's the remaining possibility, right? If they weren't lying and they weren't mistaken, it makes no sense to conclude that they were telling the truth The 12 apostles did see the risen Lord Jesus. 
and they're not the only ones. The second group, Paul says this in verse 6. He says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. A commentator, Gordon Fee, says this. He says, the clear implication of verse 6 is that the eyewitnesses were around to be consulted at the time Paul is writing. Paul is saying to anyone who wants to, in the 50s or 60s AD, you can go to the Christian community in Jerusalem and ask for them and find more or less 500 people who claim that they spent time with Jesus after he died. Again, what do we make of these witnesses? What do you do with these witnesses? Are they lying conspirators? Well, in a world where Christianity got you ostracized rather than praised, that, that doesn't seem likely. Were they all deceived again? That would be the only example in recorded history of 500 people having a simultaneous and identical hallucination, right? Maybe, definitely not. Or are they telling the truth? Did Jesus Christ appear to these 500 witnesses as well? Third group of witnesses there in verse 7. Paul says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Paul's mention of James here is especially noteworthy because James was the biological half-brother of Jesus who didn't believe in Jesus before his resurrection. Listen, if you grew up with a sibling, even if you have a good relationship with your sibling, think about what it would take for your sibling to become convinced that you were the divine son of God, right? My own siblings have seen too much, thank goodness, right? There is nothing that could convince them that I was the Messiah, praise God. But so convinced was James of the divinity of his brother that he spent his life serving the church that he founded. And this was not a power play by James. James, in his letter that we have in the New Testament, he doesn't call himself James, brother of the risen Lord Jesus. James introduces his letter by calling himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. My siblings will never describe themselves as my servants, rightly so. James would not have called himself a servant of the Lord Jesus before he died and rose. What changed James' mind? Paul says it was that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him. And fourth and final witness, Paul mentions himself there in verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This appearance seems unique. Uh, When Jesus appeared to his other disciples, when he walked on earth with them. He did just that. He was on earth spending time with them uh, shortly after his resurrection. He shared meals with them, as we said. But when Jesus appeared to Paul much later, he appeared in a vision from heaven. And that might seem suspicious to us, right? Moderns are suspicious of visions from heaven. But if you don't think that that's what happened to Paul, what do you think happened to Paul? Before his conversion, Paul was a leading persecutor of the church. He killed Christians, and he was honored for doing so. He had a distinguished place in the Judaism, an established protected religion in his day. Paul sees Jesus, so he claims, and suddenly he goes from being the persecutor to being the persecuted, happily. 
He goes from being a privileged religious figure to suffering poverty and imprisonment and beatings and more as a missionary. And once again, it just doesn't make sense that Paul would make up a story about an encounter with Jesus because it doesn't really seem to have gotten him his best life now. It seems equally unlikely that Paul is just the next on a list who have remarkably similar hallucinations about Jesus, so convincing that they're willing to change their lives over them. Paul and James and Peter and the Twelve and the 500 at great cost to themselves bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ died in accordance with the scriptures and that he was raised according to the scriptures. The scriptures, through their consistent pattern, their clear predictions, anticipate a dying and rising Messiah who will deliver us from our central problem of sin and death. And a multitude of witnesses tell us Jesus is that guy. He is the promised deliverer. Faith in him is not in vain. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what do you do with these witnesses? Right? The world is full of people deceived and deceiving. Does that fit the bill here? Can you take an honest look at the scriptures, the claims of this first generation of believers, and conclude that their witness to the risen Christ was a hoax or a lie? Or can you hear in these scriptures the voice of the God who speaks to us about the only solution that he has accomplished for our problem of sin and death? Friend, please don't leave here today without speaking to someone about how the good news of Christ's death and resurrection can be yours through faith. The good news of the gospel isn't just that something really unique in history happened 2,000 years ago. The good news of the gospel is that the risen Lord Jesus offers you an unimaginably precious gift. As I was writing this sermon, I was reading a book by Christian author Rebecca McLaughlin. We have copies of that book in the foyer. If you'd like to grab one before you leave, please take one for free. McLaughlin writes about how the Bible regularly compares the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church with the relationship of a husband and a wife. And McLaughlin says that when she married her husband, their vows included these words, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. Christian, that's why the resurrection of Jesus is such good news for you. Because if you trust in him, that's what he says to you. All that I am, alive from the dead by the Spirit of God forever, I give to you. All that I have, righteousness before God, joy in his presence forever, I share with you. Saints, Jesus is alive and he is the giver of eternal life to all who will trust in him. That is our great hope. 
We've all seen in the news the tragedy that unfolded two weeks ago in Nashville in which six people, including the nine-year-old daughter of a Presbyterian pastor, were murdered. Well, Pastor Scruggs gave a one-sentence response to ABC News concerning the death of his daughter. This was all he said. He said, through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. Saints, that's not faith in the wizard of Oz. It's real. Christians do not believe in vain. Christ has died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And afterward, he appeared to hundreds of people to prove that he is alive. And he gives all that he is freely to all who will trust in him. Saints, hear again Paul's words from verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Saints, hold fast to this word. Hold fast to this Christ. Keep trusting him. Keep following him. Keep walking with his people. Keep reminding each other of the gospel we've received in which we stand and by which we are being saved. Our faith in this Christ is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, Christ is risen Brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel that is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Lord, keep us holding fast to this word till the Lord Jesus comes. I pray for any here today who do not know the Lord Jesus, who have not yet received that gospel by faith. Lord, by your spirit, would you give them faith to receive the risen Lord Jesus? God, strengthen us, hold on to us, keep us trusting, keep us persevering till the day we rejoice with your son in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Through Christ our King, amen.